0: As terrible as the COVID pandemic has been, it would have been much worse without the past few decades worth of technological progress. The internet has allowed many more of us to work from home and genetic sequencing has ensured that we'll get a vaccine much faster than ever before. But what if this pandemic damages America's capacity for innovation? That's the concern of my guest today, Caleb Watney. We'll be discussing how the pandemic is harming America's longstanding innovation institutions and what we can do to reverse this damage. Caleb is the director of innovation policy at the Progressive Policy Institute, where he focuses on how US policymakers can best promote innovation. He is also a former technology policy fellow at the R Street Institute. Caleb, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks so much for having me on.
0: You recently wrote an essay in The Atlantic about, and here's the, the headline America's Slowing Innovation Engine. So were you, are you talking about the innovation engine? That powers the American economy, or are you talking about the engine that powers American innovation? <laughs> Where's the problem? Uh,
1: I, Both. Yeah, it's uh, it's more the fact that the the engine that powers U.S. innovation is slowing. But of course, uh, the innovation engine is in some sense the engine for America's economic growth. So you know, there's a lot of layers of engines. There's going a lot on. of there's like a, there's an engine, and we have a macro engine. Uh, exactly yeah.
0: power and grow now uh, as as frequent listeners of the podcast know um that there's been a problem a, a problem i guess with uh, uh productivity as kind of a rough measure of innovation that it used to be like crazy high in the 1950s and 60s and then it had a downshift sort of everywhere in the world that of course remember we had that wild internet boom late 90s early 2000s uh very good uh productivity and then Kind of uh, petered out and been very weak. Maybe a little bit better uh, recently. So it seems that to some degree that we have a kind of a longer term issue with innovation, at least as measured by these official statistics. But I think a lot of people reading that would think like, "Wait, I thought I saw, I thought Silicon Valley, you know, was uh, was hot, still pretty hot, even with the pandemic. That you know, there's still a lot of we're spending a lot of money. Uh, how can there be a problem?" With innovation, that it is
1: slowing. That's a great question, and certainly it's one that uh, can get a lot of you know economists hackles up if you start questioning productivity numbers. Oh, right, um, many hackles, but, many hackles, many hackles. Yeah, uh, but on this, I, I think you know economists are are basically right. I, there, there's probably some mismeasurement that's going on in terms of uh, economic productivity statistics. Um, but I like the phrase that every era has its own, you know, biases in terms of uh, what inflation is doing, or what productivity is doing, or what kinds of, um, you know, technologies are not being fully captured by, uh, you know, official productivity uh, statistics. So while, you know, I might quibble on the margins, I, I think by and large it's it's mostly correct. And uh, yeah, I should be clear that while I'm particularly concerned about the way that uh, the current recipe for American innovation and productivity. Uh, might be slowing. That's not to say, you know, blanket endorsement that everything has been hunky-dory up till now. In fact, uh, you know, one of the, the main things I try to stress in the piece is that um, these three components of the engine that I'm sure we'll get to later uh, have been under considerable stress for decades. You know, we really have not been supporting them uh, through policy at all. In fact, we've been uh, very actively working against them in some ways, um, but that COVID might represent a, a breaking point of sorts. You know, sometimes you can have so much policy, bad policy, going on for so long, um, and then you just need, you know, the final straw or a big enough um, disruption uh, that can really uh, make things start spiraling.
0: All right, so we have the the, the innovation uh, engine, and I'm trying to, I was trying to come up with a metaphor, and this is a terrible one, right? I, I was, I was, I was thinking, I don't know if you're a Star Trek fan, Caleb, but like you had the Star Trek Enterprise, and they had the two big engines, and if it was a really advanced ship. Like a, like a real powerful ship. They might even have three engines. Those were like the three huge engines powering uh, the Starship uh, forward. What are, what are, so, so your giant, your innovation engine, what are like the three nacelles that power that innovation engine?
1: Yeah, uh, so to my mind, the three biggest, and this is for the, the U.S. economy specifically, um, number one is basically international talent flows Um, So, for a long, long time now, the United States has been the premier destination uh, for international scientists, entrepreneurs, um, technical practitioners. If you have a good idea and you want to develop it, there's really been no better place than the United States. And you see that reflected in our international, uh, you know, students. Uh, So, for example, um, computer science graduate students, we see that 79% of them in the United States are international students. Um, and that's not because, you know we're kicking a bunch of Americans out of those programs. It's because our higher education system is the best and brightest of the world. And that is attracting so many, you know bright young minds from across the world that want to come here to study. And of course, they uh, they potentially hope to to stay here long term. Um so yeah, for a long time, the United States has had the status as uh, you know, the best place to possibly be, and that has led a lot of the world's uh, most promising innovators and inventors um, to come here. And of course, you know, uh, technology, growth, and innovation, uh, one of the biggest central components of that is just the human minds that come up with these new formulations of ideas. So that's, uh, you know, the first pillar of the engine or the first engine, if we're using the three different engines metaphor.
0: Um, (laughs) Uh, Please, please use the three nacelles of the Starship. You must use that (laughs) The three nacelles, yes. Uh, That's the uh, first nacelle.
1: (laughs) What kind of shape, I mean, I'm
0: hearing a lot about innovation uh, or immigration uh, in recent years. Uh, How are those immigration flows doing? Uh, and what is sort of the level of of, of political support? Yeah, uh, what has been they're so not important doing the
1: great. Um, I mean, it depends on whether or not you're looking at relative or absolute terms. Uh, in absolute terms, the United States is, you know, uh, still fairly large in terms of immigration flows compared to the rest of the world, and especially for things like uh, international students where we're pretty dominant. Uh, but in relative terms compared to, say, how we used to be or compared to how uh, you know, what percentage of high school immigrants are we bringing in as a percentage of our country? We're certainly starting to fall behind, um, you know, competitors like, uh, Canada, the UK, Australia, New Zealand. Um, so yeah, it depends on, on how you're looking at it that way. Um, but regardless, it's certainly gotten much worse in the last four years. Um, you know, Trump has made as a pretty, uh, big part of his, uh, platform was reducing immigration flows and while there was a lot of talk of you know being concerned about illegal immigration flows, specifically um, high skill immigration flows, you know legal flows have also um, seen a pretty dramatic cutoff. Um, the most recent example of this was uh, you know due to COVID and uh, what is deemed a insecure um, labor market, uh, they basically cut off flows from any H one B, L one, J one, and a few other um, you know high skill green card or uh, immigration categories um, for six months. During COVID, and there's no promise, you know, that those will necessarily end. Those could end up getting extended, uh, depending on the outcome in November. So um, things aren't looking good there in terms of political flow or political support. Though there is kind of an interesting thing that's happening. Um, Obviously, immigration has always been a very polarizing issue. But if you look at, you know, recent Pew polls, you're actually seeing for the first time ever, um, there's more um, Americans that are in support of having more immigration than less. Um. Still, the dominant position is is keeping you know numbers the same, um, but that is a, an interesting um, political tidbit. We we might see that um, Trump has, in some say sense, made uh, immigration restrictionism uh, less politically um, popular. So, what
0: is the argument against high skill immigration? Is it really just that they replace our workers, just like the argument against low skill immigration?
1: Yeah, I mean, it seems like it, it's kind of a nebulous argument. It seems to to depend on uh, who the specific person is making it, or or what is kind of the the cultural bear at the time. Um, you do see there's kind of uh, you know one vein of argument that um, actually you know we have no such thing as a STEM shortfall. This is all kind of made up by big corporate America, and really they're just wanting to come in here and replace um, you know American jobs, and and there's kind of like the, this one for one you know replacement. Uh, which I, I think seems to really miss the, the positive sum nature, especially of technological growth. Uh, you know, we still see that uh, technology is one of the most dynamic industries across the U.S. economy with um, companies constantly forming and going out of business. And so, yeah, to kind of look at it in, in this static uh, worldview that there's this one-for-one replacement that comes in here um, cl- completely misses, I think, both the theoretical and the strong empirical basis um, that, you know, high-skill immigration is uh, – extremely popular amongst uh, both the general public and amongst economists. You know, there's almost uh, universal acclaim uh, for high school immigration in terms of, uh, you know, they patent at much higher rates than native born Americans. Uh, They start businesses at higher rates than native born Americans. They have lower crime rates than native born Americans. So across, you know, most of the metrics that we really care about, um, they're they're a huge value add to the US. And
0: uh, what would be your, you know, one or two you know, big ideas uh, for reforming our immigration system. It's a very complicated system, but particularly on the high end side, uh, what would be your your big ideas?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I tend to be a big fan of of just immigration generally, but I, I do think, in terms of trying to prioritize their effect on uh, innovation, uh, high skill immigration, or or specifically the the class that I like to call superstar immigration, is is the first thing that I would remedy. We really don't have a a path uh, forward for you know, the, the most highly skilled computer scientists, engineers, academic scientists um, to be able to come into the US. Um, and so I'm currently working on a paper actually to potentially uh, revamp the, the O-1 visa for immigrants of extraordinary ability. Um, I think that's kind of been a latent tool that, that uh, only you know a few thousand uh, people get in on um, that we could really uh, overhaul and make it a much better pathway. Um, the other thing is that there, there's no specific category for startup founders, people that wanna come here and start a business themselves. Um, you know, there, there is uh, one pathway, but it relies on basically having, you know, over half a million dollars in personal income, not even in investor, you know, support it has to be your own money. Um, and so if you don't fall into that category, there, there's no systematic way to come into the United States to, to be a startup founder. And lots of other countries, Australia, Canada, um, have, you know, some version of a startup founder visa. And so I'd love to see that the U.S. adopt that as well.
0: Uh, what is your concern about universities, and do, and and do those concerns predate the pandemic?
1: Yeah, so the the second engine is, I would say, the United States' is uh, higher education system, which uh, you know, as I kind of mentioned, has long been the um, the best in the world in terms of where do most of the the best and brightest students want to come. Uh, you know, most of the traditional rankings in terms of academic publications, you know, across a, a number, um, United States university system ranks very highly. And they have a big role to play in U.S. innovation um, for a couple of reasons. Um, One, they end up attracting a lot of these top scientists from around the world, and uh, they produce basic science research that can end up being uh, the basis of uh, future technological progress. Um, I I think you've had Tony Mills on the show before, and he's talked about the fact that uh, not all forms of innovation are immediately obvious in terms of how you can uh, commercialize them. And uh, you know the university system plays a pretty big role in trying to do a lot of that that basic research funding that's important. Um, they also play an important role of commercializing kind of risky ideas. You see a lot of universities that are kind of close to technical hubs like um, Silicon Valley. Uh, you know will end up having university patenting offices where they'll try to help form these relationships between startups and academics so you can take these academic ideas and start applying them in the real world. Um, They catalyze, uh, you know, technical knowledge in the form of, you know, journal standards uh, journals and technical standards. Um, So, yeah, they they play a really important role as as a catalyst for for frontier um, ideas. And they've been, uh, you know, fairly strong, uh, but they've always had a a bit of a problem with uh, revenue. So you saw after the 2008 recession, actually. Um, is that public support- and private,
0: or is that just that, that's just the public university? All I hear about is private universities with these multi, you know, yeah. I mean, of massive course, the, the
1: private. Yeah, I know the private universities, Harvard, Yale. You know, they're they're doing just fine. I'm, I'm not too worried about them. Um, but you know, they they actually don't take that many students. You know, they they have pretty small student populations compared to a lot of these much larger, um, you know, public universities um, that are still you know uh, top grade in terms of the kinds of scientific achievements and university professors that they uh, they hire. Um, and a lot of them rely pretty heavily on public support, which, um, say, after the 2008 recession, actually took a pretty large um, collapse. It was about you know $2,000 less per pupil per year in terms of um, on average state support. And since the Great Recession, it's really only recovered about half of that. So we're still at about $1,000 less um, per person um, per year uh, funding uh, for public universities. And a lot of them have made up that revenue um, by actually. Um, Increasingly attracting international students because uh, international students pay uh, out-of-state tuition rates at a, at a much higher rate and they, they take fewer scholarships than uh, you know, in-state um, You know domestic students, especially um, And so, you know, they end up providing a, a much higher percentage of university revenue uh, percentages than they do at making up a, a percentage of the student body uh, And so this pandemic is an interesting combination of it's providing another recession for a lot of states. And so you're likely to see budget cuts across the board, while also cutting off the major lifeline that universities use to survive the last recession. Um, And so I think, yeah, without, you know, more academic support um, from, you know, state or or federal governments, um, you're likely to see um, pretty large faculty cuts or university research budget cuts. Uh, And again, kind of the, the particularly concerning thing about this is that it's likely to be that there are cuts in the exact departments where there are lots of international students, because that's where the biggest revenue drop is going to be. And of course, those are you know, the, the STEM studies, the computer science, industrial engineering, um, which is where a lot of you know, these interesting innovations are coming from.
0: Do we want uh, these bright students uh, if they're from China? Because It seems like some people are saying we do not want these bright students if they're from China, that they should not come here.
1: Yeah, I would say that we certainly do. Um, obviously, this has become a, a, a much bigger um, political issue. You see, started to see uh, a few senators um, start to raise ire about this. Um, there are certainly, you know, isolated uh, events of say industrial espionage or you know from China. There, there's um, concerning things about uh, what kind of connections they're they're keeping back home. And I, I would certainly say it's worth trying to invest more in counter espionage or in trying to to help w- find ways to to reduce that risk. But it's not at all worth you know, cutting off the human capital flows that end up making the United States the big innovation hub to begin with. Um, you know, it's really cutting off your nose despite your face. Um, and you also see that a, one of the biggest things that kind of gives the CCP leverage in terms of uh, you know, making these students so scared that they feel like they have to report is the fact that they don't have any stability to be able to stay in the United States. So I actually think for a lot of them, if you um, gave them st- the stability to know, hey, after you finish up you know, this, uh, PhD in machine learning or whatnot, you're going to have uh, you know a green card stapled to your diploma or something like that. Um, that would take away a lot of the leverage that the CCP has um, in terms of uh, you know frightening them or saying you know think about what your life is going to be like when you eventually have to come back to China because uh, there's really no guarantee that you can stay in the U.S. Every once in a while,
0: I'll hear uh, ideas about well, maybe we can greatly expand some of these really elite universities that are great, but they're just not very big. Uh, you know, whether they're Harford or Stanford or, or Northwestern. Uh, can we, can we, can those universities g- increase their capacities? Uh, there's a lot of demand. And I, you know, I, I'm told, like, if you took the, you know, the, 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 kids accepted by Yale, that they're probably not a whole lot different than the next, you know, how I don't even know how many yeah. eight, Yale, you know, 8,000 or the 6,000. If you took the next 6,000, it'd be every bit as good. So a lot of demand. Will they sure. increase their capacity at some point? Uh,
1: that's a great question, and again, this kind of gets into the the fact that I, I don't think you know the existing higher education system, for as important as it is, and as much as I don't want to see it fall to ruin, it's not perfect, and there's plenty of ways that you know we could make it better. And I, I think you're actually hitting on on one of the major weaknesses, which is um, for a lot of elite universities, um, they're kind of bundling together a few things. You know, one of them is the great world class education that they're providing. But the other is kind of the status symbol of uh, having been part of a select uh, few people to have gone to Yale or gone to Harvard. And that is kind of like an inherently scarce thing. If you increase the number of people going, uh, then, you know, you've limited how effectively how effective of a signal that is. But it doesn't necessarily diminish the great education that you're getting um, on on a technical level. so, yeah, I would certainly be uh, you know, interested in exploring ways of, say, tying federal funding for research support um, to you know, expanding the number of students that have access to these kinds of educations. Um, so, yeah, I agree that we, we should certainly be trying to, to look at uh, maybe levers we can use to, to encourage them to expand, because I, I think, yeah, there's a, there's a weird perverse thing here where, where we're bundling this really world-class education that doesn't have to be scarce with the prestige of going to a, you know, uh, a very exclusive university that kind of is
0: oh and of course i will apologize to my producer john that I did not mention vanderbilt university certainly <laughs> no conversation about the very best that america has to offer in higher education uh would be complete without mentioning um vanderbilt um thank you yeah that's right uh our city our city our city's over and if they're over uh, what does that do for the innovation engine? We'll be missing an engine. We'll be missing a, na- a nacelle.
1: That is the third uh, nacelle that I mentioned in the article. Is yes. sort of these uh, industrial clusters, uh, talent clusters, um, you know, amalgamations. Uh, there's lots of different words that a- a- economists or urbanists use to describe them. Um, but yeah, they're, they're basically the um, collection of very talented individuals, uh, cutting-edge firms, uh, nascent industries, um, all in kind of a, a close geographical environment where there can be lots of spillover between the the kinds of conversations that are happening, the ideas being shared, um, just people, you know, leaving to go uh, to a different organization or people bumping into each other. You know, you have uh, Silicon Valley is, is probably, you know, the, the the best example of this to, you know, a lot of Americans, but you have the interesting interplay of Academics, scientists, engineers, uh, engineers, uh, supply chain managers, um, you know people from all different kinds of sectors uh, and different kinds of specialties running into each other, um, bumping ideas around. And then that leads to uh, sort of more than the sum of their parts effect, um, where you know if you were to take all of those exact same people and all those exact same companies and kind of spread them out, over a much larger geographical region, um, there'd be much less of that you know, idea interplay that ends up producing more innovation, more creativity. Um, and that's, yeah, it, it's been a super important part of the United States' uh, innovation. It's where you see you know, a lot of the cutting edge firms um, come from those sorts of industrial clusters, a lot of the top ideas, uh, they're responsible for a disproportionate amount of GDP produced, of patents, of, again, you know, and any number of metrics that we care about. Um, tend to be um, clustered, you know, in these, uh, these big amalgamations. Um, and they tend to, to correspond uh, with cities, you know, San Francisco, New York, Boston, Austin. Uh, and that's, there's a lot of concern about what's going to be the effect of them um, post COVID. Again, I think like the, the other two engines, uh, this is not a new thing. Um, San Francisco, especially has been, um, facing the brunt of really bad zoning policies um, for decades. You know, housing is just not growing at the rate that it needs to. And that's the number one reason why housing prices are so extremely exorbitant. And it's very difficult you know, to, to try to move there, to start a new company, um, to, to work there as a lower level employee for some of these um, companies because housing costs are just so, so high. Um, but of course, you also feel like you need to, to be there because that's where the conversations are. That's where all of this you know, new uh, innovation is happening. And so, so that's, there's kind of been this tension for, for a long while now. But you've kind of been seeing uh, in recent years a slow, steady trickle of uh, companies and investors, you know, VC firms, um, entrepreneurs sort of leaving to either go to nearby regions or potentially just to, to go to whole new ones. And so again, this, this kind of pandemic uh, is having an increasing effect on uh, remote work, is sort of you know, the big conversation. Do people still need to be in these big clustered cities? Um, as everybody is you know uh being kept up in home you know i I'm staying in a in a you know seven hundred and twenty square foot apartment with my wife, and you know we're getting a little bit antsy um and that's reminding everybody palatial. kind of palatial.
0: yeah it's palatial. yeah you don't want to even, there's seven hundred twenty five and then there's seven hundred twenty five feet um
1: <laughs> yes, but, but
0: but right but um right just because there might be some you know uh, you know because of because of the high you know the high the high living costs and you know, uh, and maybe the cities aren't particularly well-run in San Francisco, so you'll get some drift to some other areas. Um, but are you, are you concerned that 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 process will not just be accelerated, but maybe uh, in a way that we, we don't want just because people f- won't want to live in cities anymore? How likely? Now, I'm going to tell you the baseline uh, assumption of this podcast is that is not going to happen. Uh, but what do you think the risk of that is happening where uh, c- cities just become really unattractive places?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I'm pretty skeptical of, of the idea that, you know, we would, we would see a massive long run decline of cities. I think, you know, um, most of human history points to the fact that they've been, that around, for
0: time, they've been they've around, around for a long, long time, Caleb. They've been around for a long time. They've survived they got something going you know, for them.
1: Yeah. And they survived, you know, plenty of uh, plagues and, and diseases in the past. So, yeah, I, I think long run I'm not too concerned about them. But I do think that there are short to medium term risks and there's also a a geographic risk of where are these industrial uh clusters located. Um so the, the short you know run risk, we have seen examples of you know decades, say the, the 1970s in New York, um, where there was large um flight away from the city and away to more of uh, you know suburban areas and the urban core started to to stagnate. And uh that kind of leads to like bad um Bad cycles where as you have more wealthy people especially leaving that leads to less tax revenue Which means that you can invest in public services less and so there can kind of be you know Perpetuation of bad cycles that can maybe make us lose a, a decade of urban progress or something So again, I'm, I'm not concerned about the long run. I think cities are going to be fine, but um It would be bad for us to repeat, you know 1970s new york uh, In tons of other cities across um, the u.s. Uh, the the other factor here is that we could end up seeing a shifting where, you know, maybe as people move away from from San Francisco, uh, they decide to go somewhere else and that starts to recreate maybe uh, the industrial cluster that was in San Francisco um, somewhere else or maybe even spread it out. But there's no guarantee that the United States is still gonna be the place where that, you know, top cutting edge tech cluster resides. Um, you've seen for a long time, uh, Toronto has actually been growing in size. They've been a, a pretty major AI um, Hub, and they're explicitly um, advertising on the basis of their kind of lax immigration laws. You've seen as, as far back as 2013, there have been billboards in uh, San Francisco advertising, hey, having trouble bringing your, you know, top international workers here? Uh, feel free to up, set up shop in Toronto. You know, we have much laxer immigration laws here. Uh, we have, you know, budding research uh, university environment. So they're trying to recreate a lot of the things that made San Francisco such a successful tech cl- cluster in Toronto. And it's succeeding pretty well so far. And so as all of this, you know, exodus of talent away from Silicon Valley kind of happens, there's no guarantee that it either, A, reforms in, uh, you know, San Francisco specifically, or even that it stays in the United States. You know, some people have said, oh, wouldn't it be good for all this talent to instead go to, uh, you know, Austin or to, uh, you know, uh, St. Louis or Kansas City? And there might be some of that, but there's also going to be, you know, an exodus of talent internationally. And uh, there's, there's a lot of advantages conveyed um, geopolitically from being, you know, the clear technological leader. And so I, I would hate for us to, to see the U.S. lose its its lead in that dimension.
0: What do you think about the push for industrial policy in the United States? And is that even the right term for investing more in things like science research or five G or big moonshot projects?
1: Yeah, that is a hot topic right now. Uh, I'd say a little bit of a plug um, in the the coming week or two. I'm I'm hoping to to co-launch a blog slash newsletter with my, my colleague Alex Stapp and um, our first edition is going to be covering sort of exactly this I'm um, trying to to untangle uh, the morass of techno- technology policy, uh, innovation policy and industrial policy saying, so, you know, what are these things and, and how can we separate them? Um, I think part of now, the, can, the I com- can I get a free can I get can I can I get a free subscription to that? Oh, it's gonna be unpaid. So anyone can subscribe. Oh, I, I can't I, believe that. I know, I, I know. I can't believe
0: that's unpaid. That what, a, what an amazing value. What an amazing value. But you'll be exploring you. some of these topics. Yeah. Yes,
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and so one, one of the things I, I'm trying to flesh out there is, is one of the problems with industrial policy is that it's so broad a term. Um, you know, it, people define it very differently. But if you sort of take it as, you know, sort of the deliberate fostering of an industry or industries, you know, in your country, uh, then, you know, a tons of things are industrial policy. You know, R&D tax credits are industrial policy. Um, but because it's so broad, you can also get lots of pretty bad industrial policies that also fall under that label. You know, so uh, the Jones Act, or, um, you know, Elizabeth Warren had a proposal last year for co-determination that, you know, she was calling industrial policy. So precisely because it is so broad uh, can end up, you know, uh, a lot of both good and policies can end up falling under that umbrella. So I prefer innovation policy um, because I think it captures a lot of the, the good things about industrial policy that we're trying to talk about. You know, how can we recognize that there is a positive externality from the uh, ideas generating innovative process that aren't fully captured by a private industry? And we want to account for that, you know, to get up to the um, socially efficient level of, of innovation. Um, but, uh, you know, making sure that you're always connecting all of your policies back to How does this account for the externality, the positive externality of innovation or of ideas, um, spillovers? I I think so long as you're rooted in that sort of fundamental question, uh, you're going to end up uh, capturing most of the good ideas in industrial policy while leaving out a lot of the bad ones. So I I prefer innovation policy for that reason.
0: From my history doing this podcast, I know a lot of economists do not like this question. But I'm going to ask you, if we really improved public policy in the three areas you mentioned, how fast could this economy grow? Could we hit four percent GDP growth again, or something close to that?
1: Yeah, that's funny. I, I can see why um, so many economists bristle at that question. <laughs> uh, it's difficult. I mean, it's it's hard to know. I think, as as an optimist by nature, uh, you know, I'm inclined to say that we probably could get closer. At, I don't know. You know, four percent is high, but you know, maybe we get three point five. You, you know, close to four, maybe. Um, a lot of it's going to end up depending on, um, I think, you know, the, the progress of a few specific technologies. So AI is another thing that I, I cover and talk about a lot. And you know, depending on, on how quickly we can start implementing a lot of those, um, you know, more general purpose advancements uh, across the rest of the economy. You know, sort of there, there's technology development, and then there's technology diffusion. You know, how do we actually make sure that it starts showing up in the productivity statistics? Um, so I think that could be a big source of growth. Um, obviously, I'm, I'm pretty excited about the potential for things like driverless cars and drones. Uh, you know, I hope to see industrial robotics uh, take off more. So, uh, yeah, I, I certainly think there, there's the potential for pretty uh, high growth, um, you know, probably not, you know, catch up growth, you know, that China has been experiencing, you know, seven, eight percent. Um, but yeah, three, four percent. That seems doable to me.
0: Have you noticed that a lot of people are skeptical about the importance of economic growth? If so, where do you think that comes from? Do people think the benefits of more growth are just going to go to the billionaires, or are they worried about the environment and just want to live back on Walden Pond or something? What's going on with that?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, you're definitely seeing um, skepticism around those kind of topics rise. I, I think part of it is maybe um, poor communication by economists in terms of what GDP captures and what it doesn't. Um, you know, I like Tyler Cowen has has talked in in one of his books about the idea of um, sustainable economic growth as being the thing that we care about. You know, you could imagine a world in which all we care about is, you know, GDP growth in the next 10, 20 years. An optimal policy would look very different than if you're trying to help a civilization survive for, you know, the next thousand years. And so things like uh, climate change, like asteroid uh, deflection, like, you know, making sure we don't have super volcanoes explode. There's a lot of um, existential risks that we should potentially be concerned about if we're actually thinking about the long term. Um, but, you know, sometimes those caveats don't get um, communicated to the public. I, I think part of it is also um, a sense that the world doesn't feel positive sum anymore, uh, which, which kind of gets to to another thing about, you know, how, how can we make sure that economic growth does feel positive sum, that everybody's benefiting, that it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, one person benefiting at the expense of someone else. Uh, I think there's also a cultural aspect of this. Um, I, I'm pretty interested in sort of what was the cultural effect of, you know, missions like the Apollo programs. And I, I think what was cool about that, it was, a, it was a very tangible, a very physical expansion of the frontier in a sense that, that made it feel like earth isn't the only thing. Like obviously earth is our home, earth is great. Um, but when you can show the world that you can show people that there, there is more that we can actually push out, you know, is growing the pie in a very tangible physical way. Um, I think that that has cultural effects um, that that run downstream that you know impact how people think about some of these these um, programs. So I, I think that might be one reason for maybe a more uh, you know, expansive uh, outer space program. Say so you, you can remind people of the fact that the, the pie can grow uh, both economically and and physically.
0: My guest today has been Caleb Watney. Caleb, thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: It was a great time. Thanks for having me on.